0: All right, well, the children are leaving with their Bible study leaders. They'll have their time. Us, the remaining here, are going to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. If you have your copy of the Word of God with you this morning, open it up to the very first book in the New Testament, to Matthew, and more specifically turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 today, our reading in verses 23 through 27. Now, as you're turning there, let me tell you, Whenever I was working full-time in the chicken plant, I used to have a guy, a boss, tell me, in everyone's life, a little rain must fall. And There's a lot of truth to that. I mean, in everyone's life, a little rain must fall. But I was thinking about that this week with everything we were doing for the setup of the yard sale, thinking, well, why do we need to get so much in one week? Because there's so much to do. I mean, if you hadn't seen Somehow, some way, how much stuff we dragged out of that sea can, there was so much stuff, there could not be another item put in there. You couldn't even get a pencil in the sea can, there was that much stuff. So we have all this stuff to set up, and we have all this rain then starting to change our plans. We even began to contemplate, if the rain continues, what are we going to do? Well, We knew we couldn't cancel, so we began to think, somehow we got to use the church in a way to be able to have the yard sale. So thankfully, the Lord provided a way to use any of the sanctuary for clothing and such, because that was like plan B, C, or D that we hoped we didn't have to use. But that just means, again, yeah, the week progressed. We got the sale done. It was success, as we mentioned earlier. But again, we had the interference with the rain. So maybe that saying was right. In everyone's life, a little rain must fall. But thinking on the positive side, I mean, the glass half full, right? We did have a successful yard sale, but also thinking very positively, at least it was not a torrential downpour all at one time, completely flooding the area. We didn't have any high wind, didn't have any hail. So all things considered, it maybe wasn't so bad. But then again, those types of storms do happen, don't they? There are those times when we get a few sprinkles. There certainly are times when we get a moderate rain, perhaps like last week. And there are other times when we do get a heavy downpour. We do get the flooding. We do get the high wind and the hail. So essentially what I'm saying here this morning is that there is a time in all of our lives when we have to weather the storm. And in the text today, as we turn to Matthew chapter 8, we find that the twelve, the disciples, are certainly weathering the storm. Now, in the disciple situation in the text, it is a storm that just suddenly comes upon them. The application for us today will be similar, not in that we're weathering a storm from Mother Nature, but a storm that a crisis suddenly, unexpectedly, can come our way. And if we're not prepared, it can take us. It can take us and hurt us and affect our lives drastically. Let us stand this morning as we consider the text to lead and to guide weathering the storm and how we can have peace during the storm. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 8, and the first verse we're going to read actually is outside of verses 23 through 27. It is actually verse 18. Let us read it first, and then we'll get into how Jesus calms the storm and how we can take those words from the text and begin to apply it to our lives. Again, verse 18, then, of the 8th chapter says, Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. With that in mind, he's talking about the Sea of Galilee, we jump jump to verse 23. Because verse 23 now says, When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there was a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, that's Jesus, was asleep. And they went down. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men, the disciples, marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds, and the sea obey. Father, Lord, we thank you this morning for all that you blessed us with and for all that you've done. And we ask certainly, Lord, that a blessing to be upon the reading of the word. But Lord, we turn our attention now to the text and begin to see how that can apply to our lives. Let us recognize that every one of us are not exempt from having a crisis, a storm to enter into our life. Lord, we recognize how It can come unexpectedly and can come suddenly. So we pray, Lord, today as we begin to dissect this text that you'll lead us into how we can better understand it, but yet, Lord, also apply it to how we can be prepared for when that crisis, maybe even the crisis we're in now, comes upon us. Guide us now, Lord, and direct us as we have this message time together to hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. But the account that we read, of course, not very long in length of reading, but it is an account nonetheless pertaining to the calming of the storm, which may be one that you've heard before and may quite be very familiar with you. Because it does seem like it's a pretty popular account and story. In fact, it is so popular that all three gospel writers make mention to it. Well, say three, John does not refer to the amazing miracle it occurs here, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record to it in some time, some fashion. We're reading from Matthew chapter eight. Of course, we're going to dissect that text. But later, you may find it paralleled in Mark chapter four or in Luke chapter eight. They describe it completely uh, a little bit differently, but nonetheless, the application would all be the same, regardless of which of the gospel writers—Matthew, Mark, and Luke—you may refer to with this with the miracle. Of calming the storm. So let us then, as we recognize its popularity, go back now and begin to dissect the text a little bit systematically because we're familiar with it, and then see how some of these verses directly pertain to our lives as we live them here today. And the first one we'll start with then is verse 24. Verse 24, reading once more, says, And behold, there was a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. Within that one verse, as we begin to dissect these verses systematically to apply it to our lives to see how we need to be prepared for a crisis and have peace during the storm, the very first verse tells us this for application, that a sudden and unexpected crisis can occur in our lives at any minute, at any moment it can occur. Now observe that many disciples were fishermen, which means then this was certainly not the first time they had a voyage upon the Sea of Galilee. Now I mean most likely they had crossed the sea for many times as being professional, professional fishermen. But this time as they're in the boat going across the Sea of Galilee, it will happen to be a trip They may remember forever, just like it may have been for Gilligan's Island. I asked earlier about Star Wars, and there were some of you, surprisingly, that raised your hands and said you'd never seen Star Wars. Here again, how many people have never seen any episode of Gilligan's Island? Colton, are you serious? Who else? Josh and Quinn. I would expect maybe Quinn, because she's younger than all you guys. Gilligan's Island. It's worth Googling to find out on YouTube or something, one episode, because Gilligan's Island, do they not go on an adventure that will change them forever? Yeah, they do. So they're, they're in this storm, and the storm changes them. So now the disciples are in this storm, and it's going to be a life-changing moment for the disciples. They're in the trip, just like it was for Gilligan and those others, that will change them that they will remember forever. So for disciples, though, without warning, here's what happens. Without warning, a furious storm comes upon the lake. Are you with me? A furious storm suddenly erupts almost out of nowhere upon the Sea of Galilee. Now we take a time out to make sure we get a contextual setting and understanding because here, then, is the Sea of Galilee. You may have seen some pictures. Sheila and I actually have been in Israel back in 2016 and seen the Sea of Galilee for ourselves. And it's a beautiful scene. The Sea of Galilee has nice sandy beaches. It's a beautiful. It's a well-stocked with fish. I mean, we actually went on a boat upon the lake. They take you a little tour, and you come back seaside later, and you get on the ground, and they actually serve you fish from the lake. I chose not to partake into the fish, but Sheila chose to be able to have the fish I had chicken, which is not in the lake. It's on dry ground. So I had the chicken. She actually had the fish. So it's a beautiful setting. Sandy beaches. It happens to be the Sea of Galilee over 600 feet below sea level. The low elevation that it sits actually most of the time provides a rather nice climate. Very comfortable year-round temperatures. However, the lake is surrounded by these mountains that rise over 200 feet above the lake, or 2,000 feet above the lake, and as that happens to be, the east wind is sometimes notorious, during the spring and fall especially, They can result in a sudden and very violent storm that can erupt. It comes down off the mountains into the Sea of Galilee, so much so that it picks up the waves to be seven foot tall or higher at times. Fortunately, that did not happen while we were there. But it happens. So as it happens, rather suddenly, rather unexpectedly, now you were in a boat. Now you have the storm, happens to be the situation for disciples, and now they are in a predicament. Now they're in a crisis. The storm, the waves are pushing against the boat, seven feet tall or higher perhaps, easily could overtake the boat in which they're in. As we learn that then about the Sea of Galilee, and now reading and considering the text, it seems to be, indeed, that's what is happening. A great, unexpected, powerful storm suddenly erupts. Now, the King James Version, if you like it, doesn't say a powerful storm. It refers to what's happening upon the Sea of Galilee as a tempest, a mighty tempest, which, in my mind, takes me back to Jonah. You know, we had a time in which we were all dissecting Jonah back in the first of April in the early part of the spring. And we're all very familiar with the book of Jonah. And we know that the book tells us that Jonah gets a call from the Lord to go to Nineveh. And he decides to not go. He decides to be rebellious. He runs from the Lord. He boards a ship in Tarshish, or so sets sail to Tarshish. And as you know, as he sets sail to go to Tarshish, A mighty tempest comes upon the sea. So when I think about mighty tempest, I begin to think of Jonah. Because maybe there's some similarities to what's happening with the disciples in the boat, with the waves crashing upon it, and maybe with Jonah as he was in the storm of his life. But note the changes in the text. In Jonah chapter 1 verse 4, it said, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest. So his little ship was threatened to break up. Well, it may not be the same storm, not at all in the same area, but notice how it's similar in wording to what's happening now for the disciples. There was a great storm arose on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. So suffice it to say, as we see, maybe there's some similarities in the storm that happens to be upon the horizon for Jonah or for disciples. That this is not just some ordinary breeze blowing upon the lake. It greatly stirred the waves. We referred to earlier how you can find similar accounts written in Matthew and also in Luke. They describe it all in various ways. You Matthew here is a ca- describing that the waves covering the ship. Luke writes that the storm was so bad that the ship was full of water. Mark wrote in his account of the story the waves were beating the ship so hard. That it was full of water. But nonetheless, whichever gospel writer you may prefer, this was a serious storm. And it erupted quite suddenly. Emphasis upon the word suddenly. It happened so sudden, they were not expecting it at all, that results in a crisis that's now on the hands of the disciples. The boat is taking in water. The waves are really high into the boat, and they just keep coming. The waves keep coming, crashing against the boat, maybe perhaps filling the boat with water, but they keep coming and coming and coming. The crisis is not getting any better. It just keeps happening, pounding upon them. Waves of water upon the boat. The crisis that they're in. I mean, it's no stretch of the imagination to see that they were headed on the current course of the way the waves were crashing onto the boat. If it kept happening, it's no stretch of the imagination to imagine that they could be at the bottom of the sea unless something changed, unless the storm ceased. So the disciples are in a dilemma. A sudden crisis came upon them. The storm, the great tempest, however you want to refer to it, is both unexpected and is immediate. Which, as we now make a parallel to our lives, is suddenly the same thing happens to us. It's the same type of pattern that we have in our lives, in which the storm suddenly comes upon us. A crisis in our lives. A crisis comes suddenly, unexpectedly. And because that is the case, we are often not prepared for such an event. I mean, there's numerous examples. Looking around the room, I know many of us have been in a situation, but I can think of numerous examples in which it applies to everyone, even in the country, not just limited to believers in the church. It's across this entire country. I can think of 9-11, for example. When it occurred On September 11th of 2001, the crisis the country began to feel at that moment. Who could have been prepared for that? It was sudden. It was unexpected. I mean, who, upon going to work that morning in the World Trade Center in New York City, who could have ever contemplated that a plane would strike the building? There's no way you prepare for that. I mean, that's a sudden, unexpected event. I mean, it happens, again, to every one of us, no matter the age you are. You know, maybe the, the example with the country, with the World Trade Center and 9-11, maybe that's just really too far from home for us, so let me just bring it a little closer. Let me bring it a little closer because all this happens so quickly, so unexpectedly. I mean, who is prepared for a doctor? to tell you that it is malignant. You can't prepare yourself for something. That's a sudden, unexpected storm. Who is prepared for a doctor to tell you, as you're about to have your baby, who is prepared for the doctor to tell you the baby's coming breech? Or did you got to have an emergency C-section? It's a sudden, unexpected crisis that we find ourselves in. For a matter who is prepared for the police to arrive or to call you, arrive at your house or to call you, telling you, waking you up, maybe even tonight, saying, your child has just been involved in the accident. It's a sudden, unexpected crisis. Nobody is prepared for any of these types of situations. It's a sudden, quick, unexpected turn of events. That leads a person right into an immediate crisis. It's been said, I've heard it, had even voiced it, but here it is. A crisis involves everyone, and that you're either coming out of a crisis in the midst of a current crisis, or you're going into a crisis. It just affects everyone. And right now in the text, as we look at this, the situation as it's developed, the disciples are in their own little crisis. Yes, maybe a different crisis than we might be in right now. It might be for them one of these potential life-ending natural disaster crises, But it's a crisis nonetheless. So the question then becomes, as we recognize for all of us, That sudden, unexpected events can occur, landing us in the midst of a crisis. And even for disciples, the next question really becomes, then, what do they do? Where do they turn? And that's then our second application. That when the storms of life suddenly, unexpectedly come and erupt out of control, always, always turn to Jesus. Always turn to Jesus. He's always there. Now, notice, if you will, in the text, particularly verse 24 25. I think 25 is on the screen behind me. But notice what Jesus is doing. You see what he's doing? I mean, it makes reference to how the disciples in their crisis had to wake him up. And we'll come back to that moment, but i bringing your attention to it now. We'll come first circle to it later. But it's an important part of the story that Jesus is comfortably sleeping. As it tells us at the end of verse 24, verse 25 says, they know they're in a crisis, they have to wake him up. But first, before we go back and come again to that portion of the story, notice first what disciples did and what they said. At the end of verse 25, look how they turned to Jesus, yes, but pay particular attention to what they said in verse 25, and if you have your Bible, open and underline What they said when they woke him up is, save us, Lord. They recognize where to turn. And when they wake him up, they immediately have the shortest prayer in all the Bible. They say, Lord, save us. Isn't that just the way we find ourselves in a crisis? We can immediately recite the shortest prayer on record, just like the disciples. They're in a crisis, they're in a situation, they need some help. They turn to Jesus exactly where they should turn. And it's simply, Lord, save us. Save us, Lord. I mean, how many people in a crisis echo these words? It says, Lord, save me. Lord, save my mother. Lord, save my father. Save my daughter. Save my husband. Save me. Now, notice for many people who begin to echo those words, Lord, save me. It's quite sincere. But unfortunately, for many other people, it's basically a short term request without any kind of long term commitment. They're just trying to get themselves up a fix pretty quick. They want something immediate, they want something now, but they have no desire to commit long term to Jesus. It's basically a short term request without any long term commitment for some people. And that's highly unfortunate. I mean, here's the situation. You're educated, beautiful people. And i you could have most likely filled in the blank for the second application, if I am even telling you. When you knew that when the storms of life you ripped out of control, I mean, I don't have to tell you, it's probably not the first time you've heard this. This is maybe not brand new stuff. Because you know, when something begins to happen in your life, there's one place to turn. There's one person to go to. And we all know if we're believers, if we're Christians, we know we should turn to Jesus. That's not brand new stuff. You probably heard it before. Maybe even you told somebody that before. See, so yeah, maybe that's not some new stuff, but maybe the twist this morning is the way we're attaching reality to the equation. guess it seems we would know where to turn when we need help. But sometimes we don't think about the fact that we did it so quickly, so suddenly. It's just that we, we, we know where to turn, but we don't realize it's a short-term request that we're making. Because we don't just seem to have the backing for the one to make the commitment. We just want to get out of the situation without making any kind of commitment to Jesus. Sometimes that's what happens. We want to now impact a us in the crisis of the storm. And we pray, return to Jesus. But then think about it. I mean, notice this. I mean, when Jesus then answers that prayer, simple prayer, Lord, save me. Afterwards, what do we do? I mean, do we thank him? Do we praise him? Do we totally now commit surrender to him if we had not before? You know in my life, maybe you've seen it too, that sometimes people get out of that fix, they get out of that crisis, and they don't even say thank you. They don't even say thank you to Jesus. Sometimes you can help someone get out of a situation, and they'll just go about their way not saying thank you to you. As a case, I was looking up an illustration for a guy named Edward Spencer. By chance, he was a young ministerial student living in Chicago. The story says on the shore of Lake Michigan in 1860. You guys may have been around 1860, John, Dan. We were not in 1860. So the story might be familiar with you, but the rest of it's new stuff for us. So in 1860, Edward Spencer, living in Chicago, a young ministerial student, came upon a ship in Chicago that ran aground. Witnessing the event unfold, his impulse was to immediately help those in the frigid waters. So he ran to the scene, plunged himself into the cold, frigid lake waters to save the passengers from death, the death they would have by drowning, or from thermal shock from the frigid cold water. So he dove himself to save them. An admirable thing we can find about Edward Spencer. But it wasn't, listen, it wasn't just one or two people he saved. He did this 17 times to save the people. Took upon himself to dive back in the water and help someone 17 times. Edward returned to the ice cold water to save another person. But those lives then weren't saved without a cost. Edward's Repeated diving into frigid waters permanently damaged the young man's health. Some years later at Edward's funeral, it was noted that not one of the seventeen people snatched from the death that day ever thanked him. It kind of reminds me, if you will, of the story of Jesus in Luke chapter 17 with the ten lepers. You know, there Jesus cures ten men of leprosy, a dreaded, awful disease of that day. Not one of them thanked him. Well, actually, one did thank him. Let's look at the text in Luke 17. It says, Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As we're going into the village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice. Jesus, Master, have pity on us. There's the prayer. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priest. As they went, they were cleansed. One of them, verse 15, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. Jesus asked in verse 17, We're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Of course, he said to him, rise, your faith has healed you. Sometimes we get rescued, and we don't even thank Jesus for saving us. We're in a crisis, and we pray immediately. We know to pray to Jesus to help us in a crisis. We pray for him to intervene. We say, Lord, save us. And when he answers a prayer and we've been rescued, we've been saved. Do you offer any kind of sincere, genuine, heartfelt praise and thanks, make a surrender commitment to serve him all of our lives? Or do we go back to way it was before, like maybe the 17 people that Edward Spencer rescued, or like 9 out of 10 lepers, and it just doesn't change our life at all? Maybe the point I'm driving at here is maybe a bit of a side note uh, application is that have you ever noticed during a crisis? Again, we all have them. Have you ever noticed during a crisis something major begins to happen suddenly, unexpectedly? Have you ever noticed how it can reveal our character? Character is revealed in a storm. In many cases. It is observed that the storms of the life that we're having, the crisis, that storm, will either draw you closer to the Lord or further away. But notice that whatever the case is, no one will emerge on the other side of the crisis the way that you came into the storm. Mostly, a person either becomes better or they become bitter. So the point is really the sincerity that we have upon calling upon Jesus. We say, Lord, save us. But where's the sincerity with it? Will allow you then to go through the crisis and literally picking you up at times, carrying you through it to make you a better person? Or do you just go back the way it was before, maybe even a little more bitter because maybe your prayer did not get answered like you hoped. But for the disciples, notice how they call upon Jesus. And they are in it for the long term, as we also should be. So having made that point, let me go now full circle back to what I mentioned earlier about how Jesus was sleeping. Verse 24 and 25 mention that Jesus was comfortably sleeping in the midst of the storm. Verse 25, says a crisis was upon the disciples, they had to wake Jesus up. Notice how Jesus himself is not in a crisis. He was not panicked. He was comfortably resting. Now the question is this, rhetorical of course, why do you suppose that is part of this text? Why do you think that, why did Matthew have to record that the storm comes upon the people, upon the disciples, but Jesus is down in the boat resting? Why did he have to record that? The answers reveal actually we started verse 18. Look again at verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders. He gave orders to go over to the other side, referring to how they're going to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. I mean, allow me to explain rather briefly. In the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 7, which is part of a larger unit of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Jesus is with the disciples and a great multitude of people. They're stationed upon the Mount overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And upon, as you read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew follows up them with a time frame when it comes time for all the people to depart. So in Matthew chapter 8, verse 18, Jesus then instructs his disciples to look, I mean, the the sermon on the mount is over, so now he tells the disciples to make, prepare, ready the boat. He says, not only prepare the boat, but dudes, we're going to the other side. He tells them, dudes, we're going to the other side. You think Jesus said, dudes? He says, but we're going to the other side. Meaning that, the other side of the lake, departing from the crowd, is where he just told them we're going. So don't miss this. Okay, if the disciples were listening, and I did a listening check for you, said dudes, right? If the disciples were listening and taking the Lord then for what he just said, that they would get to the other side, then why would they ever panic and in the crisis? I mean, if he just told them, if they were listening and heard him say, We're getting to the other side. Get in the boat. We're going. We're going to make it to the other side. If they just heard that and they have faith in his word, then why would they ever panic? Why did they have the crisis? I mean, verse 18 reveals that Jesus had told them, this is where we're going. This is what we're going to do. And so Jesus, of course, he's not worried. He's resting. He knows we're going to the other side. Of course, he can walk on water. But he knows. He's told the disciples where they're going. And if they've been listening, they've known it too. Maybe then that's why he follows up, if you see in verse 26, why or verse 25, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? Maybe that was their test. Observe disciples, then he says, oh, ye of little faith. At least he didn't say no faith. At least he didn't say, dude, you have no faith. But of little faith which means that in the crisis they have at that time, which happens to us, that we have faith, but it's just not functioning properly at that time. It's being tested, perhaps, that we have faith, but it begins to waver. Faith especially wavers in the midst of a crisis. So then here is Jesus. He calls them out. And to understand more clearly who he is, he has to act for them. But if they had been listening the whole time and been firm in their faith, they would have not been panicking. The point is this that true faith will enable us, the disciples, to trust in God's care even when the circumstances do not look promising. Have yeah, that crisis can overwhelm us. And it may not look good for us. The circumstances do not look promising. But true faith will enable you and me to trust God even when it does not look like it could be promising. So then Jesus refers to them as little faith. And perhaps then he makes his point. So as he makes his point, notice then as we go back to verse 26 and we go further the application that now Jesus says, okay, it's time for me. I've made my point. They are of little faith. We need to have constant faith even through a crisis. Now I'll go back and I'll calm the sea. Verse 26. He rose and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. Which then reveals our third and final application. That in every aspect of life, even though we may fail to see it, God is in control. Always in control. To give disciples a clear view of who he was, Jesus got up and rebuked the wind. And instantly, immediately, the way ceased and the sea was calm. Michael Wilkins in his commentary of Matthew observes that with divine power, Jesus is able to command even the forces of nature in much the same way that was in the Old Testament. God rebuked or parted the sea, referring to Moses, a clear demonstration of his sovereign control over all nature and things. Now notice as we see how God's in control, notice the reaction by the disciples, because now if they did not know somehow before, They begin to get a better picture of who Jesus is. Verse 27, the men, that's the disciples. They're on a boat together, right? They marvel, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? You think now they know who he is? The bottom line then really is this. I mean, it should calm us to know that whatever we are going through right now in our lives, whatever crisis may be in front of us, God is never panicked. He's not up there wringing his hands like I would be thinking about what's going to happen next. What's going what's, what's gonna to happen? I'm not in control of this. I'm getting nervous. I'm getting panic stricken. I'm not doing all this. I'm not getting nervous. That's what's not coming from me. That's not happening to God. He's never panicked. He's always in full control. He's not wondering what will happen next. In each verse of this text, and for that matter, in all of our lives, God is in control. God is always in control. God was in control during the storm in the disciples' life, and in control of the storm that you may be going through at this moment. Kimberly shared her testimony a few weeks ago. And she noticed that God was in control of everything happening to her as she was about to have baby Daniel. It pertains to all of us in the same way. God is in control, even when we don't see that. So what that means ultimately is this. Whatever your problems, whatever the storms you may be facing here this morning, all we need to do is simply call out to Jesus, listen to his voice, and trust him. Is say Pastor, I've heard it way too many times. It's way too easy because God doesn't care about me. I've been in this situation before. God doesn't care about me. He does not care that I'm going through such a hard time at this moment. He doesn't hear me. He doesn't care. He does nothing to help me. I pray and nothing happens. He doesn't hear me. He doesn't care about me. If that's what you're thinking today in your crisis, let me tell you, nothing is further from the truth. You're badly mistaken. But God does care about you greatly. Listen, God does care about each and every one of you greatly. He cares about all of us. I mean, isn't that becoming evident? that he gave his only son? If there's no other demonstration we ever have in our lives of how much God loves us and how much God cares for us, it's the fact that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And Jesus is there for every one of us now to guide us through the storm. So it behooves all of us. If we've never contemplated, never thought about it, even the crisis maybe we're we're having now or about to have, to simply reach out to Jesus. Reach out to him today. Do not let another moment delay. Reach out to Jesus today. And just voice the shortest prayer possible. Say, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And if you are sincere and genuine, he shall. And she requires faith and trust and a heart of sincerity. So today, Lord, save me. And he shall. Father, this message today, Lord, revealed a solid truth to us of how you dare, do care for us, Lord. How you do provide for us in every possible way. Lord, those storms, boy, they do come. And they do come quite unexpected and quite.